Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple Podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. The Project Purple Podcast recently has surpassed over 100,000 plays, which is just amazing. We're, we're going on year seven here at the Project Purple Podcast, coming in almost at 300 episodes. Um, but I just want to thank all the guests for allowing us to share their journey and all the listeners out there for listening to the Project Purple Podcast week after week uh, since we put this thing out almost uh, over six six years ago. It's just so wild to think. And, and 100,000 is just such a large number that so many people have heard so many great stories. We ended 2023 as our best year ever. We set another record here at Project Purple in terms of fundraising. And I just want to thank everyone who supported, donated, or participated in a Project Purple event. You made it the year it was our best year ever. Speaking of 2024, though, we have launched many of our marathon teams. We have exciting news. We are back in the Boston Marathon as an official charity partner, first time since 2018. This now makes us an official charity partner of the five largest world marathons. Many of our 2024 races have launched. Our Boston team is full. London is full. Chicago is close to being sold out um, as we speak, as we record this. We still have some spots for Berlin, and our New York team will be launching very, very soon. Uh, for those that have supported our virtual events, join our Purple Patties virtual event that is back again for its fourth year. Uh, that has launched, and that's happening over St. Patrick's Day weekend in March. For those local here in the Connecticut area, we've got two exciting announcements. We have our second annual Charity Pickleball Classic, February 24th in Oxford, Connecticut. And we also are back for our fourth annual Charity Golf Classic, June 3rd, Monday, June 3rd at Shorehaven Country Club in Norwalk, Connecticut. To learn more about all these great events, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way from Texas and to be more precise, the campus of Texas A&M or somewhere near the, te the Texas A&M uh, professor in the microbiology space and pancreatic cancer survivor, Helena Andrews. Polly Menis, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks so much, Dino. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation and congratulations on 100K listens and to your uh, massive fundraising success and all the events you have planned for pancreatic cancer patients and survivors. Well, um, it takes a village, as they say, um, yeah. but it's been a lot of work and it's uh, it's a job that I never envisioned. Uh, but one over the last 13 years that um, I have to be honest, Elena, that I've never complained about going to work. And I was having this conversation with someone the other day and I was like, ah, I, you know, I come in on the weekends and the, the good and bad of it is like the good is like I never complain about it. But the bad is like even when I come in on the weekends, I have to be social. I, I'm trying to be more conscious because my family knows I'm going to work. And I, I we were talking before, like I have two boys that are, uh, one's a senior, one's a, a freshman in college or senior in high school and a freshman in college. So they're, they're still young and they still need their dad. 
And so does my wife. My wife needs to hire her husband in her life more probably. Well, I don't know about that because maybe she likes when I'm away so much. But, uh, you know, I come in on the weekends and it doesn't feel like work. Um, yeah. It's just what I love to do. But it's a lot of work to get to where we, where we were where we were in 2023 and where we're going in 2024. So thank you. Sure. Um, I want to just share a quick story because um, you and I connected via Twitter. Um, and, and I always, you know, social media can be very dark place. Um, and I always try to find the positives in anything. And social media is one of those things where I've been really fortunate. I remember when we launched Project Purple, like Facebook, you know, 13 years ago wasn't what it is today, but like we were able to connect with so many people so quick. And I, I feel like as the social media, as like the platform started to roll out in those early days, you were able to just connect, right? And that's what kind of, if you look at the ethos of all these platforms where it was connection, right? And now it's kind of been bastardized and like, you know, monetized. I think anytime money gets involved, right? It gets really, it goes really sideways really quick, right? And then, and so I always try to, again, look at that positive and, and we connected via Twitter. And I remember that, so the other day I was like going through my inbox and I was like, oh, wow, she did message me back like last year or the year before. And then, you know, we follow each other on Twitter and, and I feel like, and I don't know how you are with, you're you're super active there. I'm not as active, but I find like some, I, I haven't figured out, and I don't know if this is a switch to X, like some stuff falls in my feed, some stuff, I have no idea why it's in my feed, right? These algorithms. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I went in back into my inbox and I don't know why I was thinking about it. And I was like, oh, oh my God, she gave me her email. Let me connect with her. And you replied right away. And so it's awesome to have the opportunity to have you here because, um, you know, again, I, I know your story from afar, from Twitter a little bit, but I'm excited to hear it for the first hand uh, and also for the first time here on the podcast. So with that, our first segment is always our guest opportunity to kind of share their journey or their story with pancreatic cancer. And as I said, before we hit record, the microphone is yours. Um, it's up to you. You can stay as high as you want in terms of content, or you can get as knee deep in the weeds as you want. Okay. Well, probably, you know, a little, little bit of both. I try not to get too deep in the weeds because in my day job, I am a scientist and trust me, I can get really sure. into the weeds, which <laughs> very few people appreciate. Uh, but anyway, I uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in May of 2019. And what happened to me was that um, I was just feeling run down. And I had gone to my regular physician to have a checkup. And I asked her, I was on statin medication for reasons unrelated to this. I asked her to change my statin because I was having some known statin side effects. And she did. She put me on a drug called rosuvastatin. And immediately I felt like dirt. Like I just felt like dirt. And I didn't want to get off the sofa. I lost my appetite. I had right pain on the upper right side of my abdomen. And after about sort of four or five days of enduring this, I called her and I said, I texted her. She's also my friend. And I said, can I go off this medication? Because I feel like dirt. And she knows me real well. And she knows I'm, I don't complain very much when I'm, you know, if, if I'm complaining to her, it has to be pretty bad. So she said, go off the medication, but also let's draw some blood <laughs> wisely. And uh, so I remember 
I dragged, I had to do a bunch of other diagnostics for my annual, you know, checkup. And I dragged myself in, they drew blood and she called me and she said, well, it looks like your amylase and lipase are a little high. I'm going to send you on Friday to the hospital for a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And then Dr. XYZ surgeon is going to take out your gallbladder if it looks like, because I think you have a gallbladder problem. Hmm. So I told my husband, I'm just going to go get this ultrasound. You don't need to go with me. And thank goodness he said, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, because we went in and the ultrasonographer um, took quite a long time. And I know how long a right upper quad ultrasound should take, maybe about 15 minutes. And she left the room and came back with the radiologist. And the radiologist said, uh, well, change of plans. You need a CT scan because there's a four centimeter mass on the head of your pancreas. Um, I was 51 years old. He left the exam room and my husband and I felt like we'd been hit by a truck. Um, I went to veterinary school, so I know a little bit about the pancreas. <laughs> I know that you don't mess around with the pancreas and things that happen in the pancreas like this are generally not good. Uh, so that was really difficult to hear. And then in the weeks following that, we kind of, you know, regrouped and we went through that sort of healthcare whirlwind that everybody goes through when they get this kind of bad news. And, uh, but, but my physician and the, the GI person that is in our town helped me find, um, a really good physician in Houston who did some additional diagnostics and directed me to an oncologist in Houston. Um, and they determined that my tumor marker that was measured in my blood, which is called cancer antigen 199, was extremely high. It was in the 6,000s. So that made everybody very nervous about metastatic disease. And um, fortunately, a PET scan revealed that I didn't have any metastases that were uh, that we were able to pick up on the PET scan. But what very careful CT analysis showed, was that uh, my tumor was what's called locally advanced or borderline resectable. And that means most of your listeners probably already know uh, that that tumor is uh, very closely adjacent to important vessels, particularly the superior mesenteric artery, um, which is underneath your pancreas and very close to it. And once that uh, mass invades your superior mesenteric artery, it's very difficult to kind of resect that area. Uh, so I was told that I would have to do some chemotherapy um, if there was any chance of uh, me becoming a surgical patient. So um, I went to a physician in Houston who was a lovely, lovely person with an excellent bedside manner. And I remember going into his office and he sat for the first time and he said, we're going to throw the kitchen sink at this thing. And I remember just weeping with relief uh, because at the time my daughters were uh, a junior in high school and a junior in college. And that my only goal was to stay alive, to see them graduate. <laughs> um, and it was really, you know, uncertain that that was going to happen. So because uh, many people had told me that if there was a possibility that my tumor might be resectable in a procedure called a Whipple procedure, 
um, I needed to find a surgery team early. And so I visited a couple surgeons that people recommended to me in Houston, and I settled on a surgeon at MD Anderson uh, in Houston. And he, he, again, lovely person, very stoic, <laughs> uh, very stoic personality. And so our first meetings were not very encouraging to me from the perspective that I was going to become resectable, or that my tumor was going to become resectable. And that's, you know, just, I think, realism on the part of the surgeon, uh, which is fair, right? Um, but after about four rounds of fulfurinox, my tumor marker fell into the 2000 range from the 6000 range. And then by eight cycles of fulfurinox, my tumor marker fell into the 200 range. Wow. And yeah, so I had a really robust response to fulfurinox. Um, and so the surgeon said, You're done with chemotherapy. I was also starting to have you know, permanent side effects from chemotherapy, like neuropathy in my feed and things like that. Uh, you're done with chemotherapy. Let's do five weeks of radiation and then and then we'll schedule Whipple if everything looks okay. So that was December of uh, 2019. And we all know what happened shortly after that. So I did my radiation and what I failed to mention was in July of 2019, shortly after di I was diagnosed, my dad was also diagnosed with pancreas cancer. So um, he complained to my mom that he had a, a right upper quadrant pain and she was having trouble regulating his blood sugar. He wasn't diabetic, but was quote unquote pre-diabetic. There's so much controversy about that term. But uh, the doctor's solution was gonna be to put him on more metformin and I said, that'll be nice for the blood sugar, but it's not going to do anything for the pain. March him back in there and have somebody put an ultrasound probe on his abdomen. Hmm. So they did that. And sure enough, he had a one centimeter tumor on the head of his pancreas. Um, after I finished, he, he was treated with gemcitabine and, and erytotecan and didn't really respond to either of those drugs. He was 78 and really too weak from having multiple sclerosis for about 30 years to um, to tolerate fulfurinox or even gemzar and abraxane. Uh, so in did January, they try? Did they try any other treatments first, mm -hmm. or they just decided ahead of time let's give them a less tolerable or less yeah, they toxic? Went combination. Yeah. They went straight to the gemcitabine. And when he didn't respond, then they went straight to the rototecan. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a minute. In January of 2020, I finished my radiation and had a six-week break. So I didn't, the, the Whipple was scheduled for early March. So I wanted to go visit my family in the Seattle area because I didn't know if I would be able to travel. I didn't know what would happen after the Whipple. Yeah. My life would be. And so we went to visit my dad. That was the last time I saw my dad. Because then um, I had the Whipple procedure attempt in March, on March 2nd, no, sorry, March 9th of 2020. And uh, um, during the surgery, the surgeon found a small metastasis on my liver. 
And so they did a wedge biopsy to remove the metastasis, but they aborted the Whipple procedure. So I didn't, I had a failed Whipple and I knew right away because I woke up and I asked the nurse what time it was. And they said it was 11 a.m. <laughs> that is not enough time for a Whipple procedure. So I immediately knew something was badly wrong. Um, I was in the hospital for a week. The surgeon came to my bedside in recovery and said, I saw your primary tumor. And I know I can get it out safely. So we might try again, but you have to do some chemotherapy first. So this is a pretty unusual situation we found ourselves in. Um, the end of that week, I was discharged from the hospital on the day that the country shut down because of COVID. Um, so I never saw my dad again uh, because I wasn't able to travel myself and neither was he during that time. I had, during that year, I had sort of the beginning of sepsis three times, um, and each time would make my husband drive me all the way down to MD Anderson to emergency to be an inpatient there because I felt safer. I mean, I'm an infectious disease biologist, and I just did not feel safe with COVID floating around in my local hospital, but I knew MD Anderson would be really strictly practicing uh, infection control. And my husband wasn't even alone. I mean, I was I was hospitalized alone, no visitors allowed. And he would sit in the car um, all, the, all of the hours that I was in the ER and wait for me to call him and tell him whether or not I was going to be admitted. Imagine the logistics of this. All of Houston is shut down, no bathrooms, no restaurants. <laughs> He's sitting in the car waiting for me. It sounds funny now, but it wasn't really very. Oh, but I, I can't imagine. So is uh, your husband in the medical field as well? My husband is a cell biologist. So um, he knows enough to. Yeah. To be dangerous. As, as right. we said. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so he know, I mean, I, and the only reason I bring, I bring that up and, and I'm going to ask this eventually, but like, yeah, he's sitting in the car, but he also knows what's going on. Like, you know, from a medical yeah. standpoint, like um, he's not a GI cancer specialist, but he knows enough. And yeah, sometimes enough. knowing too much can be a challenge right. in itself and not knowing what's going on behind the door. Right. Like he's. Yeah, got, he definitely knows guy. what's going on. He definitely yeah. knows. So on one of those visits to MD Anderson, I had a fever of 102 and uh, of course, their procedure in the emergency room is to do a CT scan on you. I had a CT. I was I was in there by myself, and um, I asked the nurse for the printout of the radiologist's reading of my CT, which said I had three additional lesions in my liver now, which were suspected metastases. And I flipped out because I was in there by myself. And, you know, to me, this meant that's the end of the road for you, honey. And um, my husband spoke with my physician who said he thought those were abscesses, which made more sense since I had this high fever. And to make a long story short, I was treated with antibiotics and those lesions went away. So in the meantime, I was also on more chemotherapy. For about eight months, I was on Gemzar and Abraxane. And sort of toward the end of that time, I felt that I had sort of fallen into, you know, medical oncology's basket and 
surgery looked like it was less and less probable to happen. And I was very frustrated by that because by this time I was, you know, had my fighting spirit back and and thought that it didn't really make sense that that um, if people thought those things were metastases in my liver, they had gone away with antibiotics. And I said so. And I remember writing on Twitter something about, you know, my my CA-99 was now normal. It was like 20 something. And um, and I was feeling great. My husband was like, you look great. What's going on? And um, and I remember tweeting out, you know, will somebody please do a Whipple procedure on me? Well, <laughs> that got the attention, caught the attention of my surgical oncologist at, <laughs> and his physician's assistant called me the next day and said, you know, Dr. Mr. Surgeon wants to talk to you. And to which I thought, oh, God, now I've really like stuck my foot in that. <laughs> but he was super nice. And I just explained that I I thought that I would be a reasonable surgical candidate because I didn't have any tumor anywhere in my tumor marker that we knew about, except my pancreas, um, which looked dead, frankly, by the what they saw on CT. And my tumor marker was ridiculously low. And he said, we'll have a tumor board and and we'll we'll I'll call you back with some options. So they did that and he called me back and he said, well, you kind of have two choices here. We can go in there and have a look and see if we identify metastases or aberrant cells anywhere. And if we do, we'll bypass your bile duct so you stop having all these infections. If you don't, we can just go ahead and do a Whipple. Is that what you want? And I remember he asked me twice and I was like, yeah, of course that's what I want. Like, why would I not want that? (laughs) So on November 2nd of 2020, I walked across the street from the MD Anderson Associated Hotel called the Rotary House to the OR and didn't know how I was going to come out. And I woke up about 12 hours later in the step down unit um, after a full full successful Whipple procedure. So that was a pretty big day. (laughs) I was in there until that was a Monday. I was um, discharged on Friday to go home. Um, And on Tuesday, we came back and they told me that I had a complete pathologic response to chemotherapy and radiation, which means that the tumor that they took out of my pancreas was completely dead. And all of the lesion, all of the things they biopsied in my liver were nothing. There were no, there was no tumor there. So that was, you know, pretty, pretty exciting. (laughs) So I I got a question though. uh So if we go back, have you ever asked, and I'm curious about this, the met that was on the liver that aborted the original Whipple, was that a met? So I have often wondered about that and I'll tell you what I know. So the pathologist uh, at MD Anderson and probably many other places, they have a pathologist in the operating room who does frozen sections right there. And I know that that person called it as a metastasis. And I know he was asked several times by the surgeon, is this, is this for real? And, um, and so they decided that it was, and the, the, then they send the tissue out and do regular formalin fixed paraffin embedded section and a pathologist looks at it again. And that also came back as tumor. However, 
my tumor tissue was sent to two from that metastasis was sent to two places for genetic testing. It was sent to Perthera and Foundation One. Perthera sequenced off of it, but the sequencing results I got back, um, for reasons maybe too complicated to explain, suggested they were not sequencing off of tumor tissue. Found the biopsy was also sent to foundation one, which I didn't know until a couple of years later. And the tissue was never sequenced there because their pathologist looked at the tissue and didn't see any tumor cells. So I believe what was seen at MD Anderson, and it's possible that there was just, it was just so small because I think they measured three millimeters by three millimeters, which is tiny, right? Yeah. But they couldn't, find cells to sequence off of in that, but it's kind of a six of one half a dozen of the other situation. We can't really know for sure. Yeah. And the, and the reason I bring it up and and I'm not going to mention names, just confidentiality, but I, I do know of someone here locally on the East coast that just hearing your story and the detail that you give is eerily very, very similar to another patient who, again, they opened them up and they see something on his, you know, scans, you know, did chemo yeah. prior, did, did went the same protocol, right? Did, I don't think he did. It was, a, it was a male. So I don't know if he did radiation, but did the, the, the chemo ahead of time, they open them up, they see something on the liver in the, the OR, they're like, yep, it's Mets. Close them back up. The next day, though, th- then they send it to the lab. They're like, no, it's an abscess. It yeah. was not. But then this gentleman, again, gets sepsis, um, you know, and and just recently went back in for a full Whipple again, you know, was able to do, you know, sim- again, yeah. similar road. Now, he's, he's just in that Whipple recovery right now, and everything looks good. But I, I, and the only reason I, 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 so I bring it up because of that, but I also, we've interviewed people where, you know, you're 51, like that's young, like right. you got kids. Like, I, I don't know. I remember being at an APA meeting years ago and there was some data from Asia that talked about um, metastatic pancreatic cancer and like doing Whipples, right? Because there was this idea of like, hey, get the primary tumor out and then you can treat the Mets separately, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I don't, I don't, I don't think like, I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not too much into the data to see what's out there, but I've got to imagine, like we've had people on, like we, we had young people on a lot recently and a couple of them had had Whipples and I know they've had to kind of find the doctor that would be able to do the right. surgery because of their age. And they were the ones advocating say like, Hey, I know there's Mets elsewhere, but I want, I need to have the surgery because I know having the surgery eliminates that primary tumor and gives me the, the greatest chance of survival. Yeah. And I feel though, Alina, that that's not really like, I, I, and I'm not trying to throw your, your, your surgeon under the bus here or under the, you know, yeah, talk negative, but when you have someone who's 51, you know, and you have a shot, like, I, again, I'm not a surgeon and I'm not in medicine, but I'm an advocate. You take that yeah. chance, right? Like to me, yeah. you take that chance when you have it and you have to, you have to have those opportunities, but maybe I, I maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe they're, they're just the data doesn't point to that being a success. I don't know. Well, I think that, um, 
part of the issue is that these tumors, they the the Mets, they grow really fast, right? Yeah, they grow really fast. And to be fair, uh, there is a period after you have a Whipple surgery where you can't have chemotherapy because you have to recover, right? That could be six, eight, ten weeks sometimes. And so, you know, if you have a a small metastasis somewhere, it means you have micrometastatic disease, and it could pop up from anywhere if you're not careful the way you sort of manage that. Now, with that said, um, doctors make mistakes sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Pathologists make mistakes sometimes. They're not, it's it's called practice for a reason. <laughs> um, yeah. It's not, it doesn't scream off the slide at you, pancreatic adenocarcinoma all the time, right? Correct. So I kind of got a, people sometimes have to work within the boundaries of what the knowledge is at the moment. I agree with you. I'm 51 and, you know, young fit, um, could handle a lot at that time. And so, you know, if it had been me and I had been, you know, thought this was a possibility beforehand, I would have said, do wedge biopsy and then do the freaking Whipple and let's get on with it. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say, those surgeons, they see, you know, hundreds of Whipple patients a year and they see all the outcomes and they know things that I don't know, right? Correct. So, I mean, I, 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 partly my attitude was, well, just peel it off by superior mesenteric yeah. artery. But again, they've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients and they know that if you do that, it just comes right comes back. back. Yeah. So you've put someone through this whole, you know, Whipple procedure. Somebody described it to me as sort of a one step short of transplant surgery. <laughs> it was really, they take everything apart and they put it back together again. They just don't graft anything in there, right? Correct. Correct. Um, so it's a really difficult thing to recover from. Um, and then And then to put somebody through the ethics of putting somebody through that without a reasonable chance of, of, of survival, I think is something that surgeons have to weigh all the time. True. So I don't, I don't, I do think it's important not to let the, um, your healthcare team become, um, sort of nihilistic about, you know, all of our patients perish anyway, like, why should we do this? It's important to remind them that, you know, you're there, you're strong, you can handle it, and you're willing to throw the kitchen sink at it. Um, because, I mean, they see a lot too, right? Yeah, and yeah. That has to be a way hard, that's a way harder job than my job. Um, so, well, you know, there's that. And, and I think, though, what, you know, you also bring up a great point, though, like high volume, right? So going, right. you know, great. I know you were in Texas, you went to MD Anderson, you know, these guys, it's high volume. And that, that's something that we always preach about. And um, I always use my example. Like that was the one one thing, hindsight being 2020 with my dad, I would have gotten to a high volume center sooner than we did. Um, and I didn't push that with my parents. Like I yeah. let them be comfortable at their local community hospital, which wasn't a bad hospital, but you know, this disease, you want to be with a high volume group to your point. Like you said, you make a great point. Like these guys do these surgeries day in, day out. They know what the difference is. 
between resection and non-resection, you know, if they open someone up and, you know, which is important. And, And that's something that I think now fast forward, you know, for me, for my experience, you know, 13 years, now there's so many more high volume centers and there's so many, you know, right. a lot of the clinicians have kind of spread out and open new centers, but there's also groups that help people get there. And there's, there's ways to find ways to get to places that do a high volume amount of these surgeries and these cases, yeah. which is really critical. That's probably the one positive I think I've seen in the 13 years, um, you know, is that that expansion of where these types of procedures are being done um, versus, you know, going back 13 years ago, you know, there weren't as many. Um, so right. that is a, a super positive. But yeah. again, to go back to your story here, being at one of those high volume centers is really a, a big difference. Yeah. So I knew early on that I was going to have to go to an academic medical center. And I'm just fortunate that MD Anderson is close to me. I did my initial chemotherapy with an oncologist, not in my community, but in Houston. But when it came time for, you know, you sort of need more integrated care and you might need this surgery, um, I really knew that there was no taking a chance in a smaller um, medical center. And I would recommend to anyone who's in my situation um, that you seek out the National Cancer Institute set of hospitals and high volume Whipple surgeons. And mostly those surgeons only do Whipple surgeries. Like that's it. That's all they do day in, day out. And this is a surgery where experience and practice and seeing all the different anatomy in that area really makes a gigantic difference. So, you know, I was in on a Monday for my surgery, got out Monday evening. I was discharged from the hospital on Friday afternoon to go home. I was also young and fit, so that won't be the case for everyone, right? And my my bowels started working like they were supposed to. Um, but I mean, in part, I attribute that to really excellent skill on the part of the, the surgery team too, right? So um, yeah, I was really fortunate that way. So I had a pretty uneventful recovery from the um, Whipple uh, thankfully uneventful. And my uncle was a vascular surgeon for many, many years. And he he was actually super helpful to me because I would have really great days where I felt really good. And then the next day I would just be like completely crashed. And my uncle told me without me ever saying anything to him, he goes, you know, you're going to have really good days where you feel fantastic and you do and you overdo it. And then the next day, you're going to be completely drained. And I just felt so relieved when he told me that because that was exactly what was happening. And I had this weird idea that that progress, you know, recovery should be a linear, a linear progress. Anyway, um, I had more chemo (laughs) after the surgery. And then I was off chemo from April until or March until August of uh, 2021. When another small routine screening revealed another small metastasis in my liver. And fortunately, this time we were able to get a biopsy of it that was enough tissue to do genetic testing. Um, And then we irradiated it with uh, stereotactic body radiation therapy, which is sort of uh, CT guided radiation that can be done in a very short number of sessions. I think it was only four sessions that I had. 
Uh, and then I went on, uh, for reasons I'll explain into a in a minute, onto uh, chemotherapy with Gemzar and cisplatin. And the reason for that was by this time we had discovered that I had a have a mutation in a gene called RAD51D, um, which is involved in homologous recombination repair, which is the same pathway with uh, genes other people might be familiar with, like BRCA1 and BRCA2, BRCA1 and 2. And people with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations uh, frequently are very, very sensitive to platinum-based chemotherapy. So I had six months of Gemzara and cisplatin. And then our plan was to put me on a drug called Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And what PARP inhibitors do is they um, block the repair of single-stranded breaks in DNA. And uh, for people like me who have problems repairing double-stranded breaks, um, the PARP inhibitors essentially facilitate a double the creation of a double-stranded break that people like me can't fix in their tumor cells. So that becomes lethal for the tumor. So after chemotherapy was over, I went on, it's called a maintenance-type therapy. And I've been on that in, since April of 2022. So we're coming up in April on two years of being on that. And um, no issues, no challenges. So that therapy is pretty tolerable. Right. Um, from time to time, I get nauseated, but really, I live a, quite a normal life. I go to work, I travel, I you know do all the things that that mostly a normal person would do. Um, but uh, one can become resistant to these drugs. One tumor, yeah. tumor can become resistant. And I currently have a very small nodule in my lung, which we have no idea what it is. It could be absolutely nothing related to this at all. It could be, you know, a small granuloma or um, a little bit leftover inflammation from something. We really don't know. It's very, very slow growing. Uh, so we're just kind of watching it at the moment. Um, but, um, we'll have more, uh, my, my, uh, surveillance, um, uh, imaging will be done the beginning of April. And so we'll just kind of see, uh, what, what's going on there. And, and I think that, you know, if it's gotten larger, then we'll make a, we'll make a plan to deal with it. Um, but I think, you know, kind of the, the state I'm in now is sort of like a bit of a whack-a-mole situation. <laughs> we'll just deal with things as they come up, if they come up, and and sort of the pace of of basic science and, uh, and clinical trials right now in this area is extremely fast, yeah. um, you know, faster than I think it's ever been. So I just, you know, I, I sort of keep, stay focused on that. Um, and, and I know, you know, I'm not shy about contacting people who are running clinical trials or people that I know that are working in the field. And they've all been, they've uniformly been incredibly generous with their time to talk to me about the trial that they're running or the drug that they're developing or whatever. So that's been, you know, that's been, that's been uh, really helpful for me to kind of get through this. So I, I want to ask the question that's probably for those that listen to the podcast, when you originally went in, mm -hmm. when all this started, was genetic testing done then? Yeah. So um, 
when I, the first oncologist I went to did what's called a liquid biopsy, where they mm. take blood and uh, look for circulating tumor DNA in your blood. And we got test results back and we were kind of excited about them. But then my husband read the fine print and the fine print said, this blood is from an XY individual. And and I am not an XY individual. I'm a fertile XX. So the, this refers to the sex chromosomes that all people have. And women yeah. are XX and men have it 1X and 1Y. Yeah. So that was a little bit scary. I think that, I mean, the easiest explanation is that my sample got, my blood got mixed up with somebody else's because those were not my results. And by the time they redid the test, uh, I had had four or five cycles of fulfirinox and I didn't yeah. have any circulating tumor DNA detectable in my blood anymore. So then of course I told you, we tried to test off that first metastasis that was discovered yeah. and that failed. It suggested I had a germline mutation in RAD 51D, but the details that I didn't tell you were that they did not pick up a mutation in KRAS, which you're aware that 95% yeah. of pancreas cancer patients have a KRAS mutation. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt, well, the positive control on that test didn't work. So they weren't sequencing off of tumor, right? Um, and then the tumor that was taken out from my pancreas was dead. You can't do genetic well, testing no cells, on that yeah. tissue. And so the first really sort of opportunity we had to follow up and sort of get a full spectrum of the mutations that I had was when I had the liver metastasis. And that also revealed that I have a KRAS mutation, the second most common one, which is uh, G12 to B, so at the 12 position in the protein. Yeah. And I was going to tell you a little more about my dad. My dad also had a KRAS mutation. His was G12 to C. Huh. And G12 to C is quite rare in pancreas cancer. It's, I think, 1% to 2% of patients. And at the time, there was a clinical trial for a drug we now call Cetaracib, um, which was the first KRAS inhibitor to go into clinical trials, one of the, fir one of the first two ever. Okay, this, People thought this target was undruggable for like more than 20 years. Hmm. So my dad was one of the 38 patients in that clinical trial. And um, the uh, he, the drug extended his life by about six months. And and when he had progression, uh, he, he deteriorated very rapidly in about three weeks. So recently I went to give a talk at MD Anderson and I wondered if that clinical trial had ever been published. And so I looked in the literature and it is in fact published and it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I can see which patient in the trial is my dad because I wow. know how long he had progression-free survival and how long it took for him to pass away. Plus the registry number for the clinical trial on the paperwork that my mom has matches the one that's in the paper. So I it felt, you know, it was hard to see that, but it was also... Mm uh somehow uplifting to know that my dad even at his most difficult time contributed to something that's going to make the a difference in the lives of so many people hopefully in the future it's so powerful and, and you know just having this conversation though i mean i like <laughs> it, how do i say this and not sound like a total jerk but 
think about all the patients that go to these hospitals. Yeah. And even in your situation, right? Like, I mean, I know hindsight's always 2020. I don't know if you've ever thought like, well, you know, if we, if the genetic testing was done earlier, you know, would if the, would if the, would the outcome be any different? I don't know. We don't know that. Like, right. And like hindsight's yeah. always 2020, as you said, but like, as an advocate, it frustrates the hell out of me when people say like, oh no, they didn't do genetic testing. But then here we are, we just went through the last 10 minutes talking about the importance and, and I'm BRCA2 positive. And I was, you know, my mom had breast cancer in 01. My dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 08. My mom was re-diagnosed with breast cancer in 16. She did the full panel because it was offered at the time for free, comes back yeah. BRCA2. I resisted for a bunch of years. I get sick. I do genetic testing and realize we're BRCA too, right? And that knowledge, but knowing that is just so powerful, right? Because as we evolve in this disease, like knowing that information is going to be critical. So my point in, in, you know, what we just, just explained here, like you, you have all this knowledge, you have this maintenance therapy that's doing what it's supposed to do. But how many people out there just go to those and they're like, all right, yeah, you're getting Florinox, but they don't know, that's, right? That's like right. It's, it's insane. This is like insane. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over again and over and again. again. With the same result. <laughs> Expect, but expecting different results, right? So when people say, oh, how come we're not getting better with pancreatic cancer? Man, I get that question like once a week, right? Yeah. Well, because people, the system. Yeah is failing these patients because they're not and then and i'm going to mention his name um i'm sure you know him well anirban mietra right yeah (laughs) Yeah, anirban's everyone's buddy right like uh like in this space because he puts out like if you're not on twitter or if you're on twitter or actually it's not twitter anymore it's x if you're on x Make sure you follow Anirban Mietra. He's a he's a great follow but he put out that report I think it was like two months ago that talked about um, you know, the, the, the rate of genetic testing in this space, even though the NIH mandated it, I think like in 2019, but then COVID came, it's like 32%. Yeah. It's stupidly low. Crazy. Stupidly low. Yeah. Stupidly. So that's like that, the- I've, I've been thinking a lot about that particular thing and how to, you know, up the rates of genetic testing by the time, you know, I sort of get to the, the, the hot, most people's most people's sort of symptoms don't lead them straight to MD Anderson, right? No. Seeing a bunch of people before that, you're seeing your your general doctor, maybe a GI person. Sometimes Correct. you don't see like an orthopedic person because they have back pain and they're like, Correct. well, help me with this disc, but it's not a disc. It's like your pancreas, right? So they've seen a whole bunch of doctors or maybe they end up in the emergency room. Correct. And those places aren't, doing, I mean, you don't even need a biopsy of the tumor. You need blood to do a liquid biopsy. That's it. Right. But that could have been done with me when I walked through the door in my local hospital and they saw four, I had a four centimeter mass on my pancreas. Why did we wait six weeks and to have the EUS and the whole thing taking blood doesn't hurt anything. They were going to take a ton anyway, right? Like, 
I kept they, it, I they kept usually it. take blood anyways, right? Like when you come in, if you're doing some yeah, sort of procedure, sure. right? Like they're going to yeah. take a vial or two. Like you can't take an extra vial. Like, yeah. I don't know. I just, I, it's I, so it, crazy. So crazy. It It's very, I mean, I was angry at myself that when I had the endoscopic ultrasound where they actually biopsy the pancreas tumor, that I did not insist that they take enough tissue to do sequence. Yeah. So by the way they do these things, most of the time, my understanding is they do a needle aspirate, a fine needle aspirate and not like an 18 gauge core biopsy. Mm -hmm. And those, those tumors, they don't, what's called exfoliate very well. So they don't, it's hard to suck up cells out of them essentially. And so they get very little material and, um, if I had known before I went in there, I would have said, if you don't do a couple of 18 gauge core biopsies, don't wake me up because I'm going to be freaking pissed off. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't, I didn't know at the time that, you know, and I don't, that's, that's me, right. With quite a bit of medical knowledge. Yeah. Um, that's not your average person. That's not like if it were my mom, what would she wouldn't imagine that in a million years. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I I see your point very well that, you know, the, the, and it, and it, and it bothers me deeply that the access that I have to medical, medical care and expertise um, and treatment is vastly different because of part in part because of my medical knowledge than your average person would get starting at the very basic level of genetic testing. And, you know, what happens to early on can really influence uh, the way your treatment goes. Oh, without a doubt. And that's one of my questions here. So. Let me preface this by saying all my questions are loaded. There's no right or wrong. It's your <laughs> it's your answer. So I'll, I'm just putting that out there first. Sure. So knowing what you know, yeah, I gotta imagine, like there, that had to be really really hard. Like you know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to actually go do the procedure. But yeah. from your background, and and also like I brought it up before, like your husband, like. I, I think it's easier, like when you don't, like there's pros and cons, right? Like when you don't know what what you should know, then I think you just kind of, if you find the right clinician, you have faith in your doctor, you trust them, whether it's gut, instinct, information, a, a set of questions that you came and they answered every question in the way that yeah. made you feel comfortable. But then you still, okay, so then you have that. But then if you know enough to be dangerous, like from a biological standpoint, like I, I remember um, a family, the guy was uh, uh, involved, the family was involved with us. He was one of the top liver transplant surgeons in the entire New England area, and he gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I remember having this conversation with him, and he's like, Dino, I, I, you know, I know what I know because of what I do. Right. And he went down that road because his family had asked him to do it, and he knew what the reality was of it. Um, and that really kind of, at one point, I think he didn't want to go down the road, but he was then, you know, persuaded by his family to give it a shot and to see, you know, and, and, you know, um, that, that, that's like really hard to do. I got to imagine. Yeah. Uh, 
Yes. Knowing how to access the literature is <laughs> tough, but from sort of from the beginning, I just sort of closed my eyes to the statistics. Uh, nobody ever said to me, this is your life expectancy or this is a mortality rate. Of course I know because I can read, right? But I just had to sort of put that aside. And there's a great essay. It's very brief. It's written by Stephen Jay Gould, who was a population biologist at yeah. Harvard. It's called The Median Isn't the Message. I don't know if you've read it, but you should. You can Google it and find it. And it's about, um, he had um, a mesothelioma, which is a really deadly cancer. And, you know, he he looked at the statistics and was horrified, but then he had to remember that a mean or the average is just that. It's a sort of a numerical construct that we make up. But what, what's real is the variation in individual patients. And, um, you know, you have to think about the things that take you off that median, like your age, your physical status, you know, where sort of put yourself don't put yourself in that in that artificial construct that we make up. And I, I think that's a good sort of message for people to hang on to. Think about your individual circumstances um, and where you maybe are on that curve and not 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 don't it's wrong to say to yourself, oh, the the mean survival is eight months. That means I have, you know, I better not renew my magazines for more than eight months, right? Don't buy dog food in the big bag sort of thing. Um, and I think, you know, for myself, it was, it was learning when to stop reading, like get your head out of the book, stay in the moment, which is just so hard to do. Um, find ways to distract yourself, but also it's okay to be worried and anxious and make a plan based on what you know. But once you've made a plan and you feel confident about the plan, let it go and do something else. Like I have plan for if that's a lung metastasis, right? But I can't sit here at my desk every day and freak out about the plan. The plan is, once the plan is, I've settled on it, um, that's how it's gonna be until new information comes to light. It's not, something to get obsessed over. So yeah, that's pretty hard, I think. Um, but again, like sometimes I am very active on Twitter. Sometimes I have to turn it off. I participate in um, some Facebook groups for Whipple patients. And sometimes I have to turn it off. I just, it can be too much um, at times. So it's it's powerful what you just said because I, I I think um you know with your background and as I said like you know a lot um and to hear that from someone who knows more than and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to you or to anyone else that's gone through the Whipple procedure but like when you're in and I we've had other doctors like Mark Lewis who's on X yeah, quite a bit you know he great. went through the Whipple yeah. yeah he's great you know and I I asked him the same question like hey man you know like you're in this, this is what you do for a living. Um, and, and it's, you know, you, you're, you're not only the patient, but you're also the clinician. Um, so it's powerful. Um, and, and hope our audience, um, takes that advice. A couple other questions here. And, and this kind of is in that same vein of, you know, because you're in this space and you have this unique perspective, let's play make-believe. 
given what your experience has been and what you know, and I know we haven't mentioned this, but your involvement in some new things that are happening, that's another way how we connected recently uh, with some research happening in the genetic space, in particular with pancreatic cancer, with clinical trials for those uh, those germline mutation patients. But the question is here, I give you a blank check. Where do we put it? How do we how do we change this thing? How do we how do we you know get better at what we do as a whole here in the PC space? Oh gosh, you should have prepared me for that one. <laughs> I can think of lots of ways to spend money. <laughs> uh but where I mean, we can have the most I think, impact, I guess, would be the question. Like if we were going to spend money, have the biggest impact with that? Because I know that that is a loaded question and it's like, yeah, we sure. can go in so many different directions, but yeah. where we could have the quickest and the most impact. So I think um, two areas. The first is genetic testing, how to figure out how to boost the rates of genetic testing in this and maybe all tumor types. Um, because you can't, there are targeted treatments and you can't target a treatment unless you know what, you know, who's eligible for it. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing for really moving the needle in this cancer is, um, and I don't know how we, we use money to make this happen, but, you know, there's a, or if it's more philosophical, I watch um sort of during GI ASCO and which is the American Society for Cancer Oncology meeting I kind of watch on Twitter the the results of the different trials that are coming out and you know there's sometimes a lot of excitement about you know overall survival benefit of a month or two months or like mm. that's not what we're looking for here <laughs> that that is very nice but it's not moving the needle so I've been very heartened to see some clinical trials, for example, for um, personalized mRNA vaccines for, for um, neoantigens and pancreas cancer and the pan-KRAS vaccine and the pan-KRAS treatments that are coming out. Like to me, those, we have to be more aggressive at thinking outside the box to move the needle for this thing. Um, I, I mean, I really don't know how else to say it other than that. And if that means advocacy, if that means changing the way we accrue, accrue to clinical trials, which is not my area of expertise at all, but whatever that means, if that means, um, you know, a lot of clinical trials get done very late in late disease stages, um, and there are good reasons for that. But we know for this cancer that people have micrometastatic disease sometimes even at a very, very early stage, right? And that that situation is different than people who are, you know, imminently dying um, from a very high tumor burden. So maybe we have to partly shift the way uh, the, the, the areas that we're focusing on in clinical trials. I'm not a clinical trials expert. I'm just, you know, sort of starting to think about those things, but yeah. it yeah. feels to me like, like the game changer incremental advances are not necessarily going to help us here. 
the one percent the one percent per year to me is is a lost leader right like we've seen this thing over the last i mean mean, i've been in this 13 years and it's been like one percent every year right something we said before and, and not that we shouldn't i mean okay that's that's a positive but the definition of insanity, right, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting yeah. different results. And I feel like we're in that insanity, right? Like in the space. The other thing, though, that I, I've always wondered and questioned on that, and maybe it's just me, but like there's this whole piece about survivability. And I, I've kind of questioned some folks. Like where those numbers really do come up, like, is there a number taker at every, like, is there someone calling people up after five years, making sure that they're still alive? <laughs> like we're, we're laughing about that, but yeah. like, I, I've just seen over the last couple of years, like people are last, people are fighting longer, living yeah. quality of life. There's something to be said, I think with that number, I think that numbers might be a little bit higher. The other flip side of that is, but we just said before, like you're 51 years old. That's a young person. Like I've probably interviewed more and granted, this is a podcast and we do seek people out that are talking about their journeys on social. But I, in the last six months, I've probably interviewed maybe 15 people, you know, from the age of 28 to 55 in that age band that are really, really young in the last like month we've been introduced to two families with, you know, one's a 13 year old, one's a 10 year old. Now those cases are very rare, we'll say, but to have like 28 to 55, that is a, that's, that's a lot of young people, you know, in that group um, that are being diagnosed with this disease. So sometimes I wonder about the data, like how accurate this data is. And, you know, I know ACS puts out that number every year and I'm just wondering like where those numbers really come from. And I know we were joking, like, is someone calling everyone on the fifth year to see that number and to Mm -hmm. see that, but I I haven't gotten an answer yet on the act, like how they're coming up with that number. I'm sure there's some sort of statistician or bioinformatics person that's responsible for that information yeah. and maybe there's like an ai program that's just getting all this data from every medical institution in the united states but it's just kind of curious to me if that number really is that number but we do need to make a big jump like we we need to like make this thing go from 13 up to 25 then up to 40 right. you know and and i think what you said is spot on. Um, As we talked about before, like having all this information is so powerful, you know, and treatments and what opportunities may be there for clinical trials, you know, is is just so, so powerful. Yeah. I mean, remember about the survival data, the survival statistics, they lag by a few years. I don't know, three, four or five years, maybe. So um, the situation that you're that we're experiencing today um, isn't going to make those statistics for another three to five years. So it probably is better than 13% to sort of get to your point. It's just, we don't have those numbers and for a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's five year survival. So um, right. It's 13% in five years. So that has to lag by five years. Yeah. 
And then we've got to throw in the COVID years now. I'm sure there'll be some right. sort of asterisk there because right. like no one was going, right? Like no one went to. Not just that, but there were all kinds of drug shortages too. Yeah. Right? Like Abraxane was not available for a while. Yeah. Cisplatinum, right? There was a cis- That was it last year. Last year, yeah. there was a platinum shortage, That's which is bonkers to me. Crazy. It's so fundamental. It's such a fundamental part of cancer treatment, not just for pancreas cancer, but for many, many different kinds of cancer. That's the next episode on capitalism on pharma that we can go down that rabbit yeah. hole. Uh, which, you know, I remember when that happened, you know, we had a, a patient who uh, who lobbied and went to New York, went to DC, and, you know, they were fortunate. They were, they were bracket too, and they got enough cisplatinum for like the whole state of Iowa because the husband and wife made a big stink about it. And I remember reaching out to someone in the field and they said, well, the patent just went, went away, you know, for the company that had the patent. And now it's like 25 cents to make. And then I think the, the response from the drug company was like, well, the QC was really bad on like this huge batch. And that's why there was a big shortage, but not to mention well, that the patent went away and it was 25 cents. Well, and I think that COVID also showed us that, you know, some of the source chemicals for making for making medications come from places in the world that you can't necessarily rely on when something like this hat when something like COVID happens, right? I want to say another thing though about where can you invest your money to sort of move the needle. I mean, along with genetic testing, I would say there's just a pretty low awareness of what the first symptoms and signs are of pancreas cancer. The additional problem with that is that they're vague, right? Mm-hmm. But I wish all those times that I had been in an emergency room with pancreatitis, somebody would have gone, oh, there's a pancreas under there. Maybe we should have a look, right? Like just a look, an ultrasound is not an expensive or invasive diagnostic test. And sometimes you're going to miss it with an ultrasound. But awareness on the part of patients Awareness on the part of emergency room physicians who are going to be the ones who are seeing people with pancreatitis. Awareness on the part of family physicians and their nurses who are often the first people who get a phone call when when somebody's got right upper quadrant pain, right? And most of those are going to be gallbladders. Great. You put an ultrasound probe on it and you didn't see a pancreas problem. No one is happier about that than me. (laughs) <laughs> correct correct parents probably are too but like it just to me that's another area where just awareness of what those symptoms are on the part of the people most likely to see them in the first line is really important almost should have like a, a cheat sheet you know like have a sheet like laminated that you know when the um the person who comes in to do that ultrasound like if you have if patient symptoms, pancreatitis, gallbladder, uh, go over the pancreas just to make sure that there's nothing in view, right? Well, yeah, like, it's that, but it's also the emergency room physician has to say, mm, need mm. an ultrasound could be one of these two two things, right? I think we just have to hammer that somehow with with the first line people who are, as I said, are not the medical oncologists at MD Anderson yeah. Memorial Sloan Kettering. They're Emergency room physicians, family doctors, nurse practitioners. Um, but those know. are the people that are going to see it first, though. Yeah, and that's those are the where you have the opportunity to make yeah. the first 
And I, you know, I went to veterinary school. I could read about it in a book all day long and not remember it. But when I yeah. saw my first cat with lymphoma, I'll never forget mm. that day. Right? Yeah. So true. Just true. One. That's it. My last question here, and this is always, um, as I said before, loaded. But this is like the loaded question. Um, given your experience, what you've gone through, um, how do you define? the term pancreatic cancer. What's your definition of it? Um well, it's a it's a it's a group of cells on your pancreas that have gone out of control. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm very, you know, this is it's just biology. That's all, right? It's just biology sort of gone sideways. Um and I don't know. There's something, this goes off your question, but there's something about sitting in an oncology waiting room that makes you realize that it it's just biology. It's equal opportunity. It's an equal opportunity issue, no matter what your age, your socioeconomic status, where you live, who you're married to, what job you do, how much money you make. None of those things matter. It's just biology. So. Powerful. That's a powerful, powerful statement. And you hit, as they said, uh, the nail right on the head with that, because, um, you know, those who think, and, and I know we said this before, like you can eat, you can drink, you can do everything right. And you can still get sick and you can still get cancer and in particular pancreatic cancer. But I, I think what you said is just, it's a home run. So um, it's awesome. Thanks. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast and allowing us the opportunity to share your journey. This has been awesome. I'm looking at the timer here. We've talked for like an hour, nine minutes, and it seems like it's 20 minutes. It's kind of flown by. Um, last thing here, we want to give our, our audience an opportunity. I know we've mentioned X. We got to not right. the, form, the former Twitter. Um, where's the best place if someone listening, maybe they're going through a very similar kind of journey? Or maybe they want to reach out. Maybe they have someone in their family um, or maybe learn more um, about your experience. Where's the best place for them to connect with you? Uh, either on X, I'm at H Polymenis on Twitter. That's at H-P-O-L-Y-M-E-N-I-S. Um, or they can feel free to email me. If they just Google my name, they'll find my email. Awesome. Helena. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for asking. I really, I really enjoyed talking with you, Dino. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you liked today's episode, please share this episode and follow the Project Purple podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be safe. <laughs>